Welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name's Ryan. My name's Brent. And this episode, we're discussing SST 226, the Black Flag, I Can See You EP. This is a weird one for me because I rarely, maybe never, listen to this EP. I always, I know these tracks in the context of the CD version of In My Head. Hmm. So to listen to them as kind of a standalone EP is uh, is a little different. But man, oh man, we've got a huge special guest on the show here today, a bass hero of mine. Yeah, Kira Rossler's on the show. Yeah, just couldn't be happier to have Kira on. And it's a great interview. Some great, like, this is a Black Flag episode. And of course, Kira is arguably best known for being in Black Flag, of course. But for me, the best parts of the interview are totally related to Firehose and the Minutemen. Great interview. Yeah, for an SST podcast, considering Black Flag is like, you know, the band, the label was kind of built around, we've had surprisingly few members of, of the band <laughs> on as guests. <laughs> Who have we had on besides Kira and Chuck? Well, Oh, uh, Dez. We had yeah, Dez. Yeah, but, you know, no real Black Flag talk. You know what I mean? I yeah, guess yeah. We, we had Dez on for the Louie Louie single, I think. Yeah, and Dezza was so cool. So was Chuck, right? Yeah, and yeah. Kira's Kira's no exception. Just so gracious, so humble, and uh, like a real hero of mine. It's funny you'll hear uh, Kira talk about Dose, and yeah. Dose Dose has like a a hugely special place in my bass playing, you know, history. And I hold Dose up there with like Ron Carter's Piccolo album. It's it's that important to me. And Kira's so humble uh, and gets into such amazing details and such nugs. Just awesome. Yeah. Hey, let's uh, let's do some spiels. Yeah, man. So this week, if I'm not mistaken, it's the Mojack mailbag. Yeah. Yeah. People so, send us stuff. Still. <laughs> I still can't believe people send us things. Even after they heard us talk about it. I could, you know, we probably could ask for stuff, but we don't even ask for stuff. People still just send us stuff. It's so awesome and so appreciated. Yeah. I just love getting people's heart and soul in a brown paper mailer or box. Um, that is never going to get old. And we totally appreciate it. Uh, but we've got a, uh, a rooster cow and a wharf cat spiel. What should we start with? Well, let's let's start with Wharfcat. So our pal Trip Warner at the super cool New York uh, label Wharfcat Records sent us another cool package. Yeah. Uh, the new Bambara EP. Oh yeah, love love on my mind, right? Yeah, we've talked about them before. Gothy post punk, a bit of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds at times. Yeah, I think we said that last time too. The the thing I wrote down this time. Actually, I don't even know if I realized it last time. Originally from Athens, Georgia, but now in Brooklyn. Uh, and I had Nick Cave written down this time too, but the guitar playing was totally giving me some Roland S. Howard vibes this mm. time too, for sure. Like in particular, obviously associated with Nick, but Nick and Roland on this EP. Yeah, it's cool. I like that band. Uh, twin brothers in the band and all three of the members uh, write. So that's always cool. Yeah. Another Brooklyn band, P.E. They have three releases on Wharfcat. Trip sent their latest, 2022's The Leather Lemon. It's a cool record, experimental. Some great sax breaks. Very arty, 
you know, don't let the synths and the program drums throw you. It's an interesting and eclectic album. Yeah, I, I looked it up. I can't recall whether I've checked them out before. I don't like. Did we receive any PE before? I don't think so. Hey, I don't think so. Yeah, and so it was my first time digging into this. It's often referenced as post-punk, but I get, I don't know, the, the description that came to my mind was like electronic world music. Hmm. That was that was kind of, it's cool. Honestly, not my thing, but it's cool. And for people who are into that stuff, they'll definitely dig it. Okay, and then we're going to head over to Florida, a record for 2014 by this band, Ukiah Drag. Mm. The album's called In the Reaper's Quarters. It's kind of twangy post-punk, lots of wah and fuzz bass. Three of the four members were in this noisy band called Letitia's Skull Drawing that are that are pretty wild. I was checking some of their stuff out. Yeah, I love the the cover artwork on it. It totally and like the there's a actual drawing of like a Grim Reaper and some lady on the front, and then uh, the the renditions of the band members on the back. It totally just fits the music. It kind of, I think you said post-punk, kind of post-punk shout vocals into every now and then kind of driving wire-esque sounds. And in, then all of a sudden, like suddenly into some psych sounds. Yeah. Uh, that's worth checking out. That's That was a highlight for me in this package for sure. Artwork by guitarist vocalist Brian the Sultan Hennessy. Ooh. <laughs> it's top shelf. Yeah. Uh, my favorite of the Wharf Cat stuff uh, that Trip sent was the two records by Brooklyn's Honey. You liked Honey better than Ukiah Drag? Yeah. Oh, no way. 2016's Love is Hard and 2017's New Moody Judy. Totally fuzzed out, psychedelic stooges, mud honey, cool vibes. Really co- uh, interesting video on YouTube that they made for the song Monk. Check that out to see and hear what, what Honey does. Oh, I didn't check that out. I was uh, I was digging the... The Dinosaur Jr. Wipers vibes and all over the distorted bass sounds. That's what I was into on this one. But I, I kind of was more into Ukiah Drag. I'll have to give these ones another listen. Yeah, I couldn't find if they're still active. Hopefully they are and they're they're making a new record. Yeah, it's been a while. Okay, uh, and then Ryan, uh, in a separate package, uh, Chris Oman of Rooster Cow Press and the Regular Wiggler. Did I say that right? The Regular Wiggler? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a zine, uh, sent us, uh, a, a different zine, uh, that he and Mike Dixon put together with some other zinesters called used records and tapes. It's a really cool and pro looking, uh, zine with some reviews of bands like daddy longhead <laughs> yeah. and some other interesting stuff, uh, like a piece on love and rockets. Yeah. Well, I seem to recall in the last rooster cow package, I was reading, you know, also out now on Rooster Cow Press, like in the back of of the regular Wiggler. Regular Wiggler, that was the one that had like the uh, the Donald Trump and Black Flag yeah. one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Bill Stevenson, best drummer of Black Flag, all other drummers, not good. <laughs> uh, but at the back of that one, it was talking about this, used records and tapes. I'm like, oh, cool. I'd like to check that out. And we got one. Yeah. And... It to me, this use this is uh, issue number two. This to me is kind of like a I don't know musings about kind of uh, digging for cheap records. Oh yeah, is, is kind of how I would put it. 
Yeah. Um, kind of a love letter to thrift store record shopping from all these different writers. Um, also covers releases by, you know, some other bands that we would talk about on this show. You mentioned Daddy Longhead, but also the Lemonheads. Also talks about a couple of bands by the name of Big Black and the Minutemen who aren't Big Black and yeah. the Minutemen that we would talk about on this show. But then goes all over the place, like Culture Club, Hall and Oates. It's cool. It was. It's a light read. I actually read it when I was on the plane this past weekend. It was just perfect and uh, kind of whimsical. The artwork totally fits too. Anyone who you know likes digging through thrift stores for that hidden gem would love that zine. Yeah. And then he also sent a record by his band Empire Smalls called Send Us Fools. Yeah. It's got a cool 90s indie rock feel for me with a again with a bit of twang you know it's low like that lo-fi 90s thing it's cool it's streaming by the way if listeners want to check it out yeah i had indie as part of my notes too but kind of reminded me of broken social scene or even new pornographers sometimes it has a total canadian indie vibe for me and here here's what else i thought of when i listened to this empire smalls record this Empire Smalls record would be a great fit on Wharfcat, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, it probably would, except yeah, they're not true. from Brooklyn. Yeah, <laughs> you know, nobody's perfect, yeah. I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> but we talked about Chris before last time from Chicago and his other bands, Soft Targets and Reagan National Crash Diet. There's there's some other proges that uh, Chris has got out there. Definitely worth checking it out. You could spend a, definitely spend an evening just poking around Rooster Cow and all of Chris's uh, projects. But this Empire Smalls record, 2022 release, debut album. Check it out. Yeah. All right. So, hey, thanks, Chris and Trip for sending that stuff over. A few cool SST-related things that uh, came up recently that I wanted to mention real quick, Ryan. Okay. Along with a new album that's up for pre-order, there's a Negative Land documentary in the works. It's called Stand By For Failure. <laughs> That's a great name, yeah. man. Uh, director Ryan Worsley has posted the first five minutes to her YouTube channel, and it's totally negative land. Like you this, got, this yeah, is yeah. not going to be your standard rock doc. I, I have a sense that it's going to be like the. Uh, have you have you ever seen the documentary on the residents? Yes, I have. Yeah, ever seen that one? I yeah. bet you it's going to be kind of sort of like that. Yeah, it probably will. Yep, in a really good way. And then another thing, Ryan, I'm assuming puzzles are one of these pandemic hobbies that, <laughs> that are a thing now. <laughs> you know? Well, like buying a bunch of dogs that you can't actually take care of. Right, like that, yeah. Well, I, I would prefer if they bought puzzles, but... <laughs> <laughs> what makes you say that? <laughs> Over dogs they can't take yeah. care of? Uh, most people probably saw Jay Mascus started a puzzle company called Puzzle Heads, which is puzzles of album art. The first one being uh, the Dinosaur Jr. Homestead album cover. Uh, Joy Division Unknown Pleasures, which I don't do puzzles, but it's just weird to me. It's like a 90% black cover. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Brad Brains uh, RAR tape cover is coming soon uh you can buy a subscription to have them shipped to your house so you know that's cool 
there's another company called Punkzels that I guess is doing iconic photos of music musicians. The first one is John Lydon. Uh, and the next one is going to be a Naomi Peterson portrait of HR. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that on our Instagram feed. You yeah. posted it. Yeah, I did. I regretted that. Yeah. How do you pronounce that again? What? Punkzels? Yeah. Say again. Punkzels. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have, Ryan? That, oh, I don't have anything else. I was digging into the Mojack mailbag. I've got some additional SS tree items that have come up in the last couple of weeks, but uh, I'll save them for next week, man. I am totally getting back into some flag and some Kira. All right, should we get into this album? Yeah, man. History lesson, part one. All right, so I'm going to jump right in and state the obvious. We obviously would not be doing this show if it wasn't for Black Flag. So it's always a big occasion when we have Black Flag on the show. And now, finally, Kira has joined the Mojack family. Yeah. That is just just awesome. Does it? There are so many Black Flag-related releases, though, that we've been through on the show thus far. I do have a list. Shall I, or is that, like, overkill? Uh, yeah, man, why don't, you, why don't you recap it for us? Okay, here we go. It's a bit of a list, so uh, put a pot of coffee on and, <laughs> and sit back. All right, here we go. So, episode 001, we did Nervous Breakdown. Three, we did Jealous Again. I, oh man, hey, I will never listen to those. Uh uh-uh. uh, <laughs> no way. Five, six pack, seven, damaged, 12, TV party, 15, everything went black. Oh, I skipped over 13, blasting concept where we had Abe Gibson on. Mm. Uh, 21, the first four years, 23, my war, 26, family man, 29, slip it in, 30. Live 84, 35, Loose Nut, 37, The Process of Weeding Out, 43, The Blasting Concept 2, where we actually had the song I Can See You on it. So like almost 200 episodes ago, <laughs> we we had a track from the EP that we're covering on this show. Um, and then we had 45, In My Head, uh, which several of the tracks are on. Episode 60, who's got the 10 and a half? And we know who that is. That's Kira. Mm -hmm. We had episode 66, Program Annihilator 1 with Chuck Dukowski on. Then we had episode 69, Chunks, the the comp that was originally on New Alliance that SST re-released. SST 70, the seven-inch wonders of the world with Jordan Schwartz. Killer interview with Jordan. People who... People, if you haven't checked out that one with Jordan, go all the way back to episode 70. You got to check that out. Mm -hmm. Uh, 81, Annihilate This Week with Robert Vodica. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Holy crap, hey? Uh, Episode 92, Cracks in the Sidewalk, another New Alliance record uh, comp that was re-released by SST. Episode 102, The No Age Comp. That's a great comp. Wow. Instro stuff, killer. Episode 166, Wasted Again, and our last Black Flag episode was Louie Louie with Ed Culver on the show. And now, here we are with Kira. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was Ed Culver, not Des, that was on that one. I can't even keep it straight, man. Yeah. 
We yeah. had Dez on though at some point. Where the hell is? Where, where, like, what episode was he on? Did DC3. I miss three? DC three. You're yeah. right too. Yeah, Ed Culver was on Louis Louis because of the the cover art. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, without a doubt, I, I mean, Kira played on probably half of that stuff you just mentioned. Right. Um, yeah. Everyone who's listening to this episode knows who Kira is, but we'll do a brief recap anyways. So I, I hit the stacks, the Mojack stacks this week and pulled out some some stuff. Here's Michael Azarad in Our Band Could Be Your Life. He says, Gin didn't want exact substitutes for departed band members. That way old material got a fresh treatment. New material came from a different direction. Better musicianship was one of his prime goals, which is why he hired Kira Rossler shortly after recording My War. Rossler, who had been kicking around the L.A. punk scene since she was 16, was jamming with Des Cadena's DC3 at Black Flag's practice space when Gin overheard her and asked her to join Black Flag. They were the coolest band I knew, my favorite, said Rossler, so of course I said yes. Rossler could play heavily and aggressively like Dukowski did, but she also played with more fluidity and musicality. Mm. And to seal the deal, Rossler and Ginn shared a similar work ethic. Whatever you do, do it all the way, as Rossler put it. It was agreed that it wasn't going to be half-assed. This is what it is. Less is not an option. Yeah, go full ass. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's from the Jim Rulin book, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records. This is on uh, Kira joining the band. Toward the end of 1983, Rossler was jamming with her brother who had been enlisted to play in DC3, the band Kadena formed after leaving Black Flag. DC3 rehearsed in the same practice space Black Flag was using, and it didn't take long for Ginn to notice Rossler's talent and invite her to join Black Flag. After a quick negotiation, Rossler insisted on finishing up at UCLA, Black Flag had its newest member. But Rossler was hardly an outsider. She'd partied at the church during the band's infancy, and after seeing Black Flag perform as a five-piece unit, it became her favorite band. Although she and Rollins had briefly dated and parted on less than amicable terms, they committed to not letting their past differences get in the way of playing together. Rossler's tenure got off to a rocky start. During her first week in the band, she seriously injured her hand while practicing nothing left inside. Mm -hmm. She immediately knew that something was very wrong and went to the hospital. The doctor told her not to play for six weeks. She was back in the practice room in four days, causing permanent damage. That was my choice, Rossler said. They would have let me not play. They said take whatever time you need. My ego wouldn't let me do it. Rossler knew that because of her gender, she would be judged differently, and she refused to give up. She needed to prove to herself and to her new bandmates that she could get the job done no matter what the cost. Speaking of that Jim Ruland book, did you see those pics I sent you of of uh, Jim's book out in the wild when yeah. I was in I was in Tirana yeah, this week this yeah. weekend? Looks like uh, his pile was like half bought up, <laughs> looking good. Yeah, looking, spread the disease. I love it. Yeah, here's a few stats, Ryan. So her first show uh, with the band was at a party in Torrance on December 29th, nineteen eighty three. So here's from the Stevie Chick book, Spray Paint the Walls. Kira's first show with the group was at a party in Torrance on Thursday, December 29th. It was not a good omen for her career with Black Flag. 
We started playing, and I couldn't move my fingers in my right hand, she remembers. They kind of locked up, and I was raking my hand across the strings, but very little was happening. I was dying a million deaths. All of my worst fears were coming true, and everyone was very nice about it, but it was kind of bad. But what I learned from it was to warm up. To this day, I warm up before every single show I play, and I've never struggled with the same cramping. It was obviously a very important lesson for me to learn, and I learned it. And that was my first gig with Black Flag. A great learning experience, but not a great gig. Nothing Left Inside is the song that broke my hand. That one note, you've got to hit it harder than the rest. Despite such a discouraging start, Kira quickly proved her worth with Black Flag. Her serious commitment to her bass playing impressed many within the flag circle. Kira was spot on perfect every time, says Tom Tricoli. You know that in the Beatles, Ringo, Ringo never muffed a beat. Never once. If you listen to their records, Ringo is the only one who's perfect every single time. Kira mm. was that way live. She was just perfect. Absolutely perfect. She would plant her feet in the ground. She would put that bass up against her pelvic area and she would start to hit it with her fingers. And every single attack was exactly the same as it would be the night before and the night after. It was always perfect. So not only did Kira break her hand, breaking or whatever, you know, injured at playing a Black Flag song. Did you know she's left-handed, but plays right-handed? Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so dig this, Ryan. She joined December 29th, 1983. In 1984, Black Flag with Kira on bass played 170 shows. I counted them in, in the back of Get in the Van. Wow. In 1985, 90 shows, and lots of those were two sets. Uh, so her final show with the band was on September 1st, 1985 at Palisade Gardens, San Diego with the Minutemen, Swa, and Tom Tricoli's dog. That's a total of 260 shows, easily 300 if you, you know, if you count all the times they played two sets in 21 months, which is just absolutely insane by any standards plus i mean uh if you you know including eps like i don't know 10 records she played on probably mm -hmm. yeah it's crazy even more than chuck right yep okay ryan this book by stacy russo with a forward by mike watt called we were going to change the world interviews with women from the 1970s and 80s southern California punk rock scene. Here's Kira in her own words. And this is about her departure from the band. Black Flag certainly forced me out. That is just a statement of fact. As to why they didn't want to play with me anymore, I certainly played a part in that, and they certainly had a part in that. I think, truthfully, Henry, Lee, Henry is in touch with how hard it was for him. Therefore, he's more able to see that, of course, it was physically so demanding for me. It was trying to train for the Olympics. To Greg, it was never that way. It was never that hard for him. I get that, and I got it then. We'd practice until me and Bill would be dropping on the floor, and then Greg would just go jam with someone else. Guitar is just easy, and Greg is just an animal. But physically, for me, I was just absolutely against the wall all the time. I think Henry understood that a lot, and Bill always was compassionate about that. Drums being by far the most physical, he went through a lot of that. 
we were always operating at full capacity. Pain, exhaustion, endurance, max. And here's a, here's a piece from Jim's book again. Kira says, Being in a band is like a marriage of several people and demands work, just as a marriage does. It demands acceptance of each other, supporting each other even in disagreement, and all sorts of things I did not get then. I thought it was about playing good and surviving. I guess that is important too, but not nearly enough. And then finally, Ryan, here is Henry from uh, the 2004 afterward of the, like the second edition of Get in the Van. We lived on top of each other and all two high levels, stress levels were constant. In spite of all that, Kira never once complained. She was in the band for the brutal 1984 tour where the band played more often than it ate, a way of touring that would send most current bands running back for mom. The whole time, Kira hit it hard every night, took the same amount of shit the rest of us took, slept as little or less than anyone else in the band and crew, and never broke, not to mention she played great. If you look at the credits on the Black Flag recordings, Kira is the bass player on Slip It In, Family Man, The Process of Weeding Out, Loose Nut, Live 84, In My Head, Who's Got the Ten and a Half, and Between 1984 and 85, On Stage with Black Flag, only a few sets short of 300 times. Her importance in the band's history is undeniable, and besides all that, she's just a great person. Ryan, why don't we throw it over to Kira to, to hear more of the story? Yeah. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Kira Rossler. Kira, thanks for being on the show. Well, thanks for having me. I want to go back to the start with you. Uh, obviously, we know your brother Paul is a musician, but other than him, did you come from a musical family? No, not at all. My uh, Neither my mother or my father actually play an instrument. My father always played classical music uh, in the house. And, it, and as I remember it, it was actually my idea to start on piano when I was six and Paul was nine. And we started uh, classical piano and, and both did that for several years. What's the first music that you remember getting into yourself? Just you. Just me. Okay. Um, well, you know, probably like a lot of people, I have this theory about like, there's a certain age, right? Like you're hitting puberty and the emotions are going crazy and, and whatever music like hits you at that time makes a big difference. Cause it's like, finally the emotions that are screaming in your body, there's something kind of talking to them. And so, you know, like a lot of kids at that time, I, I got a transistor radio probably like first, right? So top 40 radio at that time is playing like, you know, Olivia Newton-John or whatever, you know. But I, I would say in terms of something I actually went out and bought, it was probably an Elton John record. Elton John wrote songs that I, that certainly spoke to me in like junior high you know sixth grade seventh grade in that in that time and i and i probably bought my first record would probably have been elton john certainly my first concert was elton john at dodger stadium nice <laughs> well you, you know he was kind of more of a rocker back then i would say well yeah and again for me and this and this has just always been the case it, it's about the the feelings can i connect to the feelings that are being expressed you know and so a lot of the music that i gravitated to you know it was just a matter of it spoke to me emotionally you know and he had the ballads and the sort of you know 
emotional outpouring he was able to give, you know, I connected with probably also because from when I was little, piano was a part of it. The keyboard probably spoke to me when, when Paul would play piano. It was very comforting to me, you know. Mm -hmm. So there might have been an element of that early. So like a lot of older siblings, did Paul influence your your musical tastes as well? Like, was he giving you records to listen to? He certainly influenced me in, in terms of exposing me to things. Um, I would say that, that, you know, I would pick and choose out of his, he had a very broad musical interest uh, and was older, right? So he was, you know, MTV was coming out and he was getting into, uh, he was into the Beatles early and he was into then, you know, prog rock. He got into like Jethro Tull and yes, and Emerson Lake and Palmer, that stuff. And I wasn't attracted to the prog rock thing. And, and even the Beatles wasn't really my thing. Um, but then I got exposed to Bowie and the Stones and that was something that, you know, was more my cup of tea and so you know again early like junior high i would be you know had bowie posters and and stones posters up on the wall and he was leaning a little bit more you know progressive rock type music right so your first band wax with two x's yes <laughs> this was this was a pre-punk band this was punk. No, this was absolutely uh, having been exposed to uh, punk rock because my brother went to high school with uh, Paul Beam and George Ruthenberg, later Darby Crash and Pat Smear. We went to the Germs very early and he was exposed to punk rock very early. And Wax was certainly a response to um, we got to do this, too. Uh, I mean, he had an old he had a friend who was a guitar player who immediately joined in and and they cut their hair and we you know wanted to be in a punk rock band and and i you know for me because bass i had i'd started bass during paul's prog rock times but i was still you know pretty early on for me punk rock seemed more uh feasible than the prog rock band that i was trying to join of paul's when i first picked up the bass guitar <laughs> For sure. Uh, so what did Wax sound like? Who would you compare them to? Or were you like covering other bands? Did you do covers? Well, listen, um, I mean, uh, Glenn, who's a, uh, the guitar player, was writing a lot of the songs. It was very rock, straight rock influenced, um, Rolling Stones, you know, uh, uh, guitar player, uh, very rock driven. So I would say that there was a lot of straight rock, like punk rock was by yeah. the way i mean tell me the ramones aren't a rock and roll band you know but anyways we thought we were different but you know it was really a lot of rock i was my songs and there were a couple um i i was even more rudimentary than rock i would say were very stiff and and involved me screaming i called myself candy cane and wore chained around my neck and and screamed on the microphone at, while i played um, so uh, I would say Glenn's songs were more formed. They had choruses. They they were more uh, more straight rock songs. Uh, and then our singer, who was not particularly a musician, did a lot of screaming too. In and Paul wasn't a drummer. You understand that Paul was playing drums. So I, I would say that it 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 was leaning on the stiffer end because both the you know whole rhythm section was pretty inexperienced. Right. You know right. It's it's a interesting point you make. Looking back in hindsight now, of course, 
a lot of those first wave bands like X or the Sex Pistols, they sound like classic rock bands. Weirdos. <laughs> yeah. Weirdos. You know, I mean, come on. And yes. Well, and and again, I'm you know, the thing I'm talking about about what kind of music influenced us, you know, we when we were in junior high, we were listening to rock. So mm-hmm. so then when we were a little you know, starting to form our bands, of course, those were our influences. We couldn't get away from them. And some people tried harder than others, like the Minutemen had this idea, you know, we'll have really short songs and we'll be you know, or play really, really fast. But playing fast is hard, Yeah. by the way. Yeah. So not all these bands were even that fast. Yeah. OK, well, and then, of course, speed became the the measuring stick for uh you know, for yeah, some it. people think that. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the Germs is a rock band. Pat Pat learned by listening to Yes records and and playing guitar along to yeah. them. So you know, we were all influenced by what we knew. Well, I mean, that's pretty obvious too, because a lot of those first wave people are good musicians. Well, it, and yeah. it was very much an anti-disco thing. I mean, when punk rock at the beginning was a reactionary thing towards the disco and the hippie thing right so there was this this anti this and it wasn't anti-rock per se it was anti-disco and hippie right okay so what came next was it sex sick next is that and is that still high school no i wouldn't say that i wouldn't say sex sick was next i would say glenn the guitar player from wax and i continued to play together once paul joined the the screamers so we had a band called the visitors we had a band called the Monsters, which had Nikki Beat from the Weirdos play drums, and and we had that. so we did several incarnations of bands. Again, leaning heavily rock in terms of our sound, and those were all uh, pre-sexic. Um, when I, I finally got kicked out of a, a band again, I got kicked out of every band I've ever been in that wasn't mine, by the way. But anyways, when I got kicked out of the Monsters. Um, was when I first started uh, thinking, I guess I got to start my own band here. <laughs> and I had a a, a female friend uh, who called herself Gerber in the punk rock days. And, and we were good friends and we decided to start an all girl band mm-hmm. called Sex Sick. That's uh, Michelle Bell. Michelle Bell. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So still and, some... And around the same time, uh, Paul was starting to do Twisted Roots and he and I did that. That was happening at the same time too. Right. So those first bands like uh, the Visitors and the Monsters, kind of the same people, I believe. Did that band play any shows? Like, did you open up for any any bands? The Visitors, yes. The Visitors played, uh, actually opened at the Starwood for Devo because the guy, the singer Spaz Attack had been in a Devo video. That was sort of his claim to fame is that he spazzed out in this Devo video. So he got us the gig opening for Devo. So we played some gigs. The Monsters never played a gig because Nikki Beat felt that we had to headline the whiskey the first time we played, which of course was not an easy gig to get (laughs) because nobody had ever heard of us. Um, But having played in the weirdos he thought he was important so uh, so we never played a, a live show mm. yeah it's funny you know devo keeps coming up on this show from you know like people like yourself that came you know come from from that scene as, as like a really important band you know i was never a big devo fan the funny thing of course looking back people are a lot more 
kind to all these bands, right? But I had my favorites and they weren't necessarily a favorite. I had my favorites. I had bands I didn't love back mm -hmm. then, you know? I mean, to be honest, I, I try not to be the, the wow, those were the good old days and everybody was so, all the bands were so great. You know, that just wasn't my perception of things. Yeah. So who were your favorites? Um, right off, it was uh, it was the Weirdos, it was the Avengers, and and the Screamers, the Germs. Um, those were probably the the first ones. And when I, as soon as I heard Black Flag, Early Incarnations, I loved what they were doing. But there were bands around town that I could sort of take it or leave it. It was a social scene, so you would go to the gig sometimes. But whether I would actually like go and like concentrate and listen to the band definitely depended on whether it was one of the bands that I was uh, interested in. Okay. So you're a Black Flag fan. Tell me about getting together with Dez to play with DC3. Well, my you know, I saw some Black Flag shows, but I would say the first time that I, that I uh, they became my favorite band was probably 1981. Henry had just joined the band. They came back and played the Whiskey A Go-Go. Uh, it was as a five piece. Dez is playing rhythm guitar and uh and chuck biscuits is playing drums and i saw them at the whiskey and i was like oh my god like they were now my favorite band henry i thought just was able to encapsulate something of the energy you know he was able to to express it again that emotional connection in a way i hadn't had um before and I started going to, to several shows because Michelle, my good friend, was dating Tech Biscuits at the time. So we started hanging out. I spent a little more time and, and sort of got to know more about their approach to, you know, the, the music thing, the touring, the, the you know, the kind of uh, level of commitment they had that was uh, above and beyond just a, hey, we play music, the practicing schedule, the, the playing schedule. You know, I started to be exposed a little more to the to the details of that. Um, so I had been hanging around a bit when uh, Des decided to to do a, make a three piece band and uh, call it DC3. And he asked me to join uh, his power trio, which honestly only lasted about six months. Mm. Did you play at all with DC3? Like play, no, play any shows? No, no. no, we never played live. We were practicing at the same place as as Black Flag was practicing. So, uh, and one day Henry just called me and he said, you know, Chuck's out, you know, you should hang around after practice and, and jam with Bill and Greg. And I was like, okay. <laughs> they didn't seem to know anything about it actually. When, when I did do that, I said, Hey, do you guys want to jam? And they were like, Oh, okay. Like they, they didn't know anything about this arrangement that I thought had been made. But anyway, it was, it was that a very informal, just uh, hang around after practice and jam with them. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I, you know, what happened next has been fairly well documented. So I want to kind of breeze past that. I want to ask you about some songwriting actually. And, yes, please. And my my idea here, if this works, is just to throw some song titles out at you and just you can tell me what comes <laughs> to hope... mind or what your involvement <laughs> okay, actually I was. Memory, yeah, I hope my memory holds up. I, I'm glad that you bring up songwriting, though, because I actually this is another sort of fundamental belief I have is that the, the that the what a song does is so 
key who wrote it right mm -hmm. and 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 for black flag just like for a lot of other bands you know how it evolved into a song is very much part and parcel to why the song is the way it is you know and yeah. and being that you've picked these particular songs in this particular ep to discuss um the songwriting is fundamental to absolutely why it is the way it is so throw throw songs at me i'll do my best okay well i'm going to start i'm going to go back a ways before we get to please, to the please, ep please. i want to yeah, yeah. i want to get into some three-way tie for last material so okay i guess first of all i mean the minutemen are well known for outsourcing lyrics right like throughout their yes their, their uh -huh. career sure. so I'm, I'm guessing some of this was lyrics probably some of it was you contributing maybe some riffs as well or full songs lyrics uh only on three-way tie uh what happened was that the minutemen uh went on tour with black flag for a week on the in this big long uh 1985 tour and um mike and i that was really the first time that mike and i had actually had a chance to hang out and have long discussions and and he asked at when i when he left uh the tour he asked me to write and send him some lyrics so that's how that came about long discussions with mike watt long all-night discussion <laughs> that doesn't the, sound real <laughs> oh come on you're joking right yes the man can talk yeah feel yeah as you might say okay so something like political nightmare is a song that yes. that you contributed lyrics to um, right like are you just writing for your own sake and mike's going through it and saying and pulling stuff out or how did it work no i mean i think that that was i was not someone who ever wrote any sort of you know with political bent i like i said i'm very much an emotional writer i write about feelings and stuff but men and men are kind of a political band so it was it was definitely written trying to uh bridge the gap between my very sort of emotional heart-driven expression and the fact that it was if it were to be a Minutemen song it would it would should have politics so i was trying to connect the dots uh, the song no one like i when i hear that i i have to think like you know mike played you this this riff <laughs> that he had and and said what no, you know what no, could no. go along with this <laughs> no as a matter of fact I, I wrote this poem and sent it to him and when i heard it i couldn't believe the interpretation actually i thought it was so strange that, that this you know kind of dark sad poem had this sort of upbeat sort of come on <laughs> and i was like whoa not what i expected but that's the fun thing about songwriting right is when you when you combine and collaborate weird shit happens yeah especially if someone's seeing something you you wrote on a piece of paper and interpreting it completely different than what you had in your head when you, yes, when you wrote it down yeah. right so that was exactly it for to me it was a dark sad somber song and and there and then mike did what mike did <laughs> okay uh the song stories love that song what can you tell me about what can you tell me about the lyrics to that um, you know, again, these these are these are poems written. Oftentimes, when I when I write lyrics, and still to this day, I have to be in sort of a sort of a dark place, like a dark, quiet place. And and on tour, there's plenty of dark <laughs> times. Not necessarily quiet, but yeah. but you know, very sort of we're all we're all sick of each other we're all sick of being around this thing and trying to to carve out little moments right so 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 i can't tell you what 
the actual sort of underlying thinking was other than that you know i was again trying consciously to write things i would be willing to send i would tend to just have a journal you know and do a lot of journaling and and a lot of po the poetry that i was writing at the time you know i wouldn't send to anyone i wasn't writing songs to myself so so you know trying to force a little more structure on my my thinking and so that in that way it might have been a bit me mechanical uh because i'm trying to figure out how to get from just journaling to you know writing something with some structure right. um and these were these are early you know I, I didn't do a lot of songwriting really i still don't i mean i don't generate the number of songs that a lot of people who play 50 years do you know yeah. um so so it was I was probably pushing hard to take what I and I what I still do too is you know journal kind of freeform and then see how to apply structure after the fact and turn it into something that you know could potentially be lyrical. Yeah, I was going to ask if you if you still you know kept that practice up. Yeah, well, I I just put a record out yeah. last year. <laughs> okay, well, as far as you know, uh, output quality, mm -hmm. not quantity. Right. I would, say. Uh, I would say too. Yeah. Okay. So like a song like Stories, do you think like did D Boone ever, you know, express any issues with singing something that personal, do you think? Or he was was he kind of all in? <laughs> I don't think that D would have told me. D was a really sweet guy. He would have never said geez, this is kind of uncomfortable. He might have said it to Mike, yeah. but he would not have said it to me. I don't remember us ever talking, he and I, about, uh, you know, what it was like to do to sing my songs or Mike's songs for that, I mean, for that matter. I mean, the two of them were, were close friends, but Mike has a very particular way of talking and, and writing, which probably also felt foreign. You know, this is one of those things, like I said, that makes it so interesting because there's still an interpretation happening on top of the songwriting when you then are performing someone's lyrics especially that aren't your own right mm -hmm. and, and what causes you to be able to take that someone else's emotions and ideas and translate them uh through your throat and actually try to make somebody feel something you know mm -hmm. it's a whole nother level and uh and i was actually surprised that d would have done any of my songs i expected when i sent them to mike them to be all songs that mike would sing right right when Dose started happening, you've talked about how you were, I believe, writing songs for Paul's children, like kind of, and I mean, when you, when you look at it through, through that lens, even the song titles, the rabbit and the porcupine, sl the slow little turtle, the fisherman yes. and his wife. These it, are story. These are bedtime stories, particular. They are songs that I did not write. They are bedtime stories uh, that I would, uh, I moved to Connecticut in uh, 1986 after I had been in Black Flag and I was afraid his kids would forget me. They were very young. Mm -hmm. So I would make, a, a, and his, his oldest would struggle sleeping when I would babysit. And I had this idea that if I could make, you know, bedtime stories, at least he could lie there and have something to listen to. So I would read the stories and then I would overdub uh, one bass line and then another bass line and I because I thought thought of these intertwining bass lines as very soothing and relaxing so so then when Mike and I decided to try to do a two bass band we didn't you know what 
what uh, material are we going to draw from other than some jams, which some of them did come from jams, is that I had this huge catalog by that time of story stuff of these intertwining bass lines. So I introduced those to him uh, and they were to back up those exact stories, the rabbit and the porcupine, the slow little turtle. So you were making these like actually put putting these down like with a four track or something like that yes and, a four track cassette deck and, and then uh and then making them cassettes to to send back to la to have them be able to listen to bedtime stories i went from from dr seuss all the way to edgar Allan poe hmm. in the story tape so that's how long i did this you know there were there were years and years wow. and years <laughs> and many volumes of story tapes wow that's crazy okay um when you're working on the, so, I mean, I guess it's one thing to send them to, to your niece, niece and or nephew. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what, you know, two what, nephews. Okay. Yeah. Two nephews. Um, uh-huh. it's one thing, to, you know, to, to, to record yourself singing and sending it to them. But when you're actually recording for dose, was that your first time singing lead vocals on something that was going to be put out into the world? Um, well, I sang lead vocals in, in wax. Mm. <laughs> we didn't actually record anything. Um, but yes, I think so. I think that I, I and I, and I still to this day, I mean, I would never say I'm a singer. I'm a bass player who sings. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're expressing yourself, I think that words and, and vocals, you know, make sense. And, and, um, and Mike, we went through, those went through an interesting arc where we started very instrumental with just, you know, hey, let's put one singing song, which is a song that I had written about Mike, about something that had happened uh, emotionally. And uh, and then we went through, you know, more and more lyric songs. And then late in the later in the dose thing, he started wanting to be, go instrumental again. And I, I can't tell you what his driving force there was. But so the, so the first record, we had all of these instrumental songs and I had, Again, my cassette four track life was kind of like my life today songwriting. I don't write them necessarily for to be performed, right? But he knew I had this catalog of stuff. And uh, and so he picked uh, that song, uh, Taking Away the Fire, to, to put on the first record. And that was the first time I think I sang uh, on a record. Okay. Uh, I've also read that to some degree the the session you did at, that ended up being released as Minute Flag uh, mm-hmm. kind of helped ins- you know maybe inspire you and Mike to to think two bases can work together. So well, actually, it was it, the the key thing we learned there was that two bases can work together, but we can't have anybody else in the band because <laughs> there's no bloody room because right. of all these other. <laughs> people because it felt like there was no room at all playing with mike and with those guys i felt like why the hell would i play anything you know it would just felt and so when we started talking about it we were like if we're going to do a two bass thing it it could be absolutely no other instruments you know because i knew mike would be taking up three quarters of the space and i I, for me to have any space there had to be no other instruments (laughs) okay so going into fire hose I want to ask right. you about some of the some of the songs on that, especially on the first yes, record. Yes, of uh, course. Because there's connections with Dose as well, obviously. And yes, um, all of them. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Later on as well. Did you know? Do you think that? Well, I'm, I'm assuming not because Firehose wasn't happening when Dose happened. But did you know that some of those 
riffs might be repurposed later for for actual no songs. i think i was pissed at first <laughs> i felt like geez mike you know that you can't write your own songs you gotta steal those songs right uh, i mean honestly it, you know i am uh, i'm a very self-involved individual um i think that was probably my first reaction was it was hard for me to understand and it took a long time for me to realize how hard firehose was for mike you know he had he had had deep boon to do the Minutemen, you know, he had a he had a an equal partner, mm-hmm. and and so with Firehose, he felt so much more responsibility and 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 the need to sort of create this thing that that I'm sure the songwriting thing, you know, any any leg up he could get was probably very important. So so no, I didn't expect it. I was not asked. And I didn't love the idea at first. <laughs> okay, well, because that's I fair. felt like those, I felt like that those songs were being kind of being. It's not like he was doing a dose cover, right? He was just yeah. taking the riff and saying, "I'll make this new song." Right, for sure. Okay. Um, I mean, it wasn't exactly a tribute to Dose because he wasn't covering the song; he was just changing it. Yeah, yeah, I understand what you're saying for sure. <laughs> Maybe undermining the Dose project a little bit. Look, Mike was had been making a living, sort of, and he was trying to make a living. It's a different thing, you know. And again, hindsight is twenty twenty. I felt like it shouldn't have had to to need doses thing, but he needed whatever he could. He was trying to 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 survive something, you know, very much. And and like like I said, hindsight's easy. He needed to figure it out, and he would do whatever he had to. And, and if that meant stepping on dose or anything else, you know, fair game. For sure. Okay, so Under the Influence of Meat Puppets, do you know what you contributed to that song? There's a short lyrical coda. I'm, I'm just curious if I we're... I think that he wrote the lyrics on that. I think that is a dose uh, song that he wrote that we that started out as a jam. And so, so you know, the song did evolve through us together. But it could have been written by Mike, you know, conceptually. It, the, the fact that it turned into a dose song was because it started out as a jam. But he took, you know, his part. He didn't take my part from the jam. He took his own part from the jam and turned it into Under the Influence of Meat Puppets, who was a band that influenced both Mike and I a lot. Okay, so by now, by now you and Mike are a couple. So, like, are you at any point sitting down together and writing like at home like hey, um, like hey kira I, actually, have, I have this riff do you have anything actually for it, it kind of goes the opposite that the very first dose uh dose uh songs that were jams were were jams went right after d boone died and, and mike wouldn't leave his apartment i was afraid he was never gonna play the bass guitar again so i was trying to just get him to play and and so some of that those early jams were were, were not even bef- we hadn't even decided that Dose was going to be a band. It was just trying to get them to play. Right. So fast forward to the time frame that you're talking about. Firehose is going. Um, no, by this time all of the songwriting and, and truthfully even once dose got going i mean i i moved to connecticut for a while we were sending four track cassettes back and forth we had we had become we had become sort of independent songwriters who would develop songs in many different ways i mean not many but either mike would write a riff and i would write a bass line or i would write a 
riff and Mike would write a bass line, or I would write a riff and I would write a second bass line because Mike wasn't writing a riff to my bass line. And so I would write both of them. So, but it was all happening separately and we would like lay it down on a four track. And then, you know, I was working by the time I moved back to LA and was living with Mike, I'm working. So he would potentially work on those stuff while I was at work. So we had to facilitate songwriting, which in dose is this really arduous process, uh, a lot of hours on our own, you know, trying to make it happen. Okay. Another Firehose song, uh, Relating Dudes to Jazz. So this is, this is a dose riff and it's called number two on the, on the dose Uh album. So my, it was an early, early jam. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my, my working theory has always been that these numbered ones didn't have titles because the, you knew that those riffs were going to be used again. So there's not at all. We were just, <laughs> my, I actually, and this was not smart, but I actually thought it would be fun, right? We could just call, call it number two. It was, it was an instrumental. It didn't have the kind of, you know, emotional, lyrical content. It got very complicated though. By the time we were at seven, it was like, what song is this? Which one is that? You'd look at a set list with right. number five on it and you'd go like, oh shit, which one is that? It was, it was a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> But the first four were definitely those early jams that were even pre-dose that we had recorded uh, right after Dee Boone died. Uh, and, and and he was just sort of locked in his apartment and we were uh, playing. Okay. Uh, Things Could Turn Around by Firehose. What a beautiful song. Um, oh, well, what... that's that, that's completely a, uh, a lyrical a poem of mine that that Mike decided to, uh, I think I was still living in Connecticut at the time. And I wrote that poem and sent it to Mike because he he did still ask for a while for me to send him lyrics or give him lyrics uh, once we worked together Mm -hmm. for a while. Anyway, the firehose song locked in. What can you tell me about that? Same thing, right? It's, It's my lyrics. Um, I had nothing to do with the, um, I, you know, I think that Mike's songwriting started to be somewhat more for Ed. You know, he he started to see the value in, in Ed's melodic sensibilities that were a little different than Deep Boot. And he started writing to it and he found that my lyrics were helping facilitate that, you know, that so he was getting into to melodic uh, singing, which, you know, hadn't ever really been a big thing for Mike, you know, in the Minutemen, mm-hmm. especially and with his own singing, especially, but but ha- having someone who he thought of as more of a melodic singer, he could play with that. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, okay, the next album, Ifen, you contributed to the song Anger. <laughs> Yeah, really complicated. I was I was probably furious, probably with Mike, and I wrote a poem, and then he decided to make a song out of it, probably to make fun of me, <laughs> because we had a very contentious relationship even when uh, we were fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it was still a very uh, volatile relationship. Like D. Boone level volatile, or... <laughs> No, well, no, because with T. Boone, see, he felt safe to really be volatile. I'll never forget one of the last times, uh, you know, Minutemen opened for R.E.M. 
very late in, mm-hmm. in Deep Boone's life, right before he died. And uh, I went and joined them. It was like Atlanta or something. And Deep Boone and, and him are literally in different green rooms. Like they were like they're having such a big fight that they, they're like in two separate rooms. And I'm like here to visit. And I'm like, you guys, this is and they're so mad at each other and they have to go on, right? <laughs> no, I mean Mike and I would would get mad and we would scream and, and fight. But um but no, I, I think that the, you have to have a, a very safe trust to really, you know, have epic fights <laughs> and and i think with tipoon he could have he could fight harder than that and his mother and sisters you know uh, that's the where you really see that sort of next level right. volatility he could give mike mike water run for his money i i bet um well i actually learned later that that wasn't really my thing that was yeah. me trying to uh you know carve out equality and that insanity right on the album from Ohio, there's a song on there called Liberty for Our Friend. And someone named Kelly Thornton contributed to that song as well. Who's Kelly Thornton? Oh, yeah. She's a girl who was a really good friend of mine that then Mike slept with. Mm. <laughs> so, so so isn't that fun? Yeah. Um, so, but I mean, Mike and her were, were close friends. That was what I thought the relationship was. Um, and uh, and I guess she she... He he wanted her to to write poems. Uh, uh, again, our relationship was volatile, so mm. maybe he was looking to, to to capture some of the creativity that he found, you know, by getting her to write lyrics that he had formerly found in mind. Okay, well, I'm sorry for bringing that up. That's fine. <laughs> it was a long time ago. <laughs> we both misbehaved. You know. <laughs> Understanding that is a just an all-time i think an underrated classic in the in the firehose discography i loved firehose you know and i and i loved that he was mike was able to take these these poems of mine that were that were you know very you know hard on your sleeve type of of lyrics and and create melody and create beauty out of them and and it did feel like he connected to something new in a few of those that he hadn't uh connected to before and i think it facilitated that because because he was able to do what we were talking about like take that and express it in a way that you people like yourself could feel it when he sang it you know and 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 that that arc between you know me writing in my room and it getting going through Mike and going through Ed and hitting you that's that's a it's a big arc and it's not easy to get from here to there you know so Mike was discovering something you know through that that um was a first for him you know in yeah. these in these songs you're talking about okay and then even later um Mr. Machinery Operator era we've got uh the song that you already mentioned number seven but then also <laughs> sincerely which i'm i'm gathering now since talking to you that is just another uh piece of poetry that you that mike had gotten at some point down the line yes well like i said i was a journaler uh, and you know and i was here and there writing writing poetry and some, some writing some songs for dose that were from my lyrics and also you know, a lot of the poems that never really clicked for me into songs, um, Mike felt free to, and I wanted him to, I always felt good when he was able to connect to something that 
I had written because I do, I think it, like we talked about this building of songs and, and how different people involved creates a totally new thing is, um, it's fascinating. You know, when you see how a song evolves, you know, what comes first, does the lyrics come first? Does the riff come first? You know, who does it come from? All of that, you know, creates such a myriad of results, you know? Mm -hmm. So it always felt good to be a part of those things. Moving into Black Flag, I want to talk a little bit about the instrumental era of the band, which kind of ties into, I believe, with with the later era as well in my head. So Mm -hmm. some of these songs where you get writing credits on... um, on the instrumental tracks like Long Lost Dog of It, The Pups Are Dog in It. There's no individual writing credits on Weeding Out, but I'm assuming like a lot of that stuff was just written as a band in the in the practice space. Well there were both but there were both types of songs and I think it's kinda it's kinda easy to tell when, once I break it down this way. There were songs that were quote unquote jams which started with a riff from Greg and there were songs that were quote unquote jams that did not start with a riff from Greg. And and so a song like Process of the Weeding Out itself, that was a Greg riff that, you know, then when we jam, and I use the term loosely because my job was to play the riff over and over again <laughs> and so that him and Bill could have fun. Right. Uh, you know, and that was actually when we when I first tried out with them, that was exactly the the job. You know, he would show me a riff and I would play it over and over again until my hands wouldn't work anymore. And and they would jam and, and they were like, oh, wow, this is fun. You can like <laughs> hold down that riff really good. So um, so that's, you know, the sort of two flavors of of instrumentals. And, and when I get credit writing, it's because it's it's a more freeform jam that isn't necessarily coming from a riff that Greg had already written. I mean, but holding it all d- down like that is a, you know, a <laughs> challenge in and of itself, for sure. Like, you know, just being this that steady metronome. It is a challenge. And, and it is part, I think, of why you know, for many, many years after, you know, having drums was optional because I, you know, I have a pretty good metronome in my head and that was an, uh, an exercise in keeping the metronome going regardless of what happens and what monkey wrenches are thrown your way. You know? mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, playing with your fingers is very percu- percussive as well. Do you think, you know, Chuck played with his fingers? I'm assuming Greg did when he played bass as well. I don't think so. No. Okay. And you can tell. Yeah. You can tell. <laughs> Listen yeah. to my war. It's very, um, I mean, and Greg always wanted this. I mean, it's very, it's a little stiffer. The bass, a blade playing with a pick tends to be a little more stiff because the two fingers, when you're playing with your fingers, they do sound, they sound different. It's like walking, yep. right? You're, yep. you're left, you can actually, if, if I t- edited together footsteps and edited all lefts, it would sound different than left, right? Right. Yep. And, and then with fingers, it's like that. So, so it's kind of easy to tell because it becomes this back and forth thing, which is quite different than, than, Anyway, I can hear it. Anyway, I'm pretty sure he played with the pit. Yeah, well, it's definitely, you know, on the albums you played on, I would say probably more integral to the sound than it maybe gets mentioned, I think. <laughs> well, it's funny because a lot of people think 
you know, wow, you know, you're bass playing in, in Black Flag. And the truth is, it was obviously not a creative time for me. You know, it was very much a, you know, I mean, Greg would sit and go like, and I would go, and he would like drill it into me, the rhythmic sensibility that he wanted these things to have. And I felt very much like, just, just do this, just emulate this. And, and so, um, so he had a vision for how he wanted the band to sound and i was it was my job and and i was happy to do it and i volunteered for this i to try to my best to create that sound that as you said was very fundamental to what greg was trying to do and as the songwriter let's face it he's the one with the ideas you know i mean bands aren't democracies <laughs> anybody who thinks they are isn't paying attention the songwriter is the guy in charge or gal in charge and it can shift hopefully it does hopefully people are sensitive to the songwriter of you know if you're playing like the beatles right or you're playing different people's songs and there there's a shift potentially in, in where the power is but you know much of the black flag catalog 99.5 percent is greg as songwriter with other people you know trying to sort of capture his vision maybe not 99.5 Tukowski <laughs> had some amazing songs he did, yeah do you, do you think he was was he open to having other people write like would I I mean we'll get to some of your other contributions but did would you have had more do you think if it would have been encouraged I you know it, it's such a, it's a it was such a complicated thing because if you if you think about the timeline what happened when I was joining the band there was still an injunction against right. the name black flag right so there was this catalog being developed um and 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 huge amount of stuff that Greg wanted to do that he couldn't do. So so when I joined, it was a particularly uh, sort of back backlog of stuff yeah. that he was trying to accomplish. So there was this huge catalog of stuff th that I was just there to learn and process. I think that possibly if, if, if it had continued, because in some of the later times, there was a openness, but I, that a lot, Bill had a big uh, part of that too. I mean, we would practice a lot of hours, right? And so, so sometimes Greg wouldn't be there and me and Bill would practice or me and Bill and Greg and Henry would be sitting on the floor or whatever, right? There's all these permutations. And I think it was Bill probably who at some point just said, hey, do you have any riffs? And 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 I would play something that I had written. So, so I don't think it was it really... I don't know how it came about with Chuck's songs. There may have been more of a democracy. He was more of a uh, peer right. to Greg than I was. Right. Um, but I was never, I certainly didn't, was never asked. I was never even, I never honestly even felt that he was open to me changing the bass parts in the songs. Mm -hmm. You know, he said once afterwards to Mike, after hearing Dose, I didn't know Kira could play like that. <laughs> and I thought, well, wh when would he ever have, you know, yeah, you have to actually open the door, For Greg. Sure. But, yeah. um, but and again, I knew what I was getting into. I'm not saying that I was, you know, conscripted in this. I joined willingly. I was gladly there to support his vision. Mm -hmm. But it was his vision. Yeah, uh, this you t kind of touched on it. Uh, but this theory that you hear people uh, talk about that the bulk of this material, the, you know, the recorded stuff was all written or the, 
you know, a lot of it was written, like, as you say, during that injunction. Do you mm -hmm. subscribe to this theory at all that, you know, at a certain point, Greg's thought process was like, I, w I just want to get all this stuff out and then end the band? No, no. no. I don't think Greg foresaw, I mean, he seemed to, he seemed to have a, a, a blind spot even before I joined to what was happening, right? Which is that people would irritate him and he would kick him out of the band, right? I mean, aside from Chuck, who I believe, and I could be speaking out of turn, this is just my opinion. I think he's the only person who was kicked out possibly for more musical reasons because he became a very integral part of the management process yeah. continuing on. So he continued to be a peer and a friend. Greg had this, you know, cut, cut him loose kind of mentality um and i don't think he foresaw that if you keep doing that long enough you know it's going to be hard to, to sustain this you know i don't think he could see what was kind of obvious to others which is that you know you kick enough people out greg and the problem is you, <laughs> you <know? laughs> but uh, i don't think that he was necessarily able to see himself and his role in all of this so i don't think he ever foresaw stopping i mean and he hasn't stopped he's always yeah. been a songwriter and a player and he picks who he plays with and what he calls it and he still you know owns the name after much to do right so um I don't think he first saw stopping. I think that he, in his mind, he's a very uh, easygoing guy, which is not at all true. But I think he think he that's who he wants to be is a is a very easygoing guy, and I think he imagined probably that he would open up. I mean. We're going to talk about it, I know, but but a lot of this stuff, they were instrumentals. It, I don't think he saw it coming that Henry would sit there in practice while we were doing these instrumentals and start writing lyrics yeah. to these songs, which is what makes these songs in later Black Flag, to my mind, some of the best material because Henry's now expressing himself. He's not expressing Greg. And when he sings Greg's songs, it doesn't sound the same. Yeah. Now, Chuck's songs... They, the two of them connect a little more emotionally, but Greg's songs, no. And then when Henry starts expressing himself again, which are two song, record was going to be instrumental in my head for sure was going to mm -hmm. be instrumental. But Henry started coming up with this awesome material, right? So I don't think he foresaw that. He saw the instrumental Black Flag as a way for him to, you know, continue exploring and changing and growing and not feel you know, constrained by what he felt was Henry's, you know, in, you know, lack of ability or whatever. I mean, Henry may not be a melodic singer, but he's clearly someone who has a really great ability to capture the emotion of the song lyrically, right? And and he then does that. And I think Greg was surprised by that. And, and it became a new kind of Black Flag material that hadn't existed before. Mm -hmm. I know Black Flag played shows without Henry. Um, yes. I'm assuming some of the stuff that ended up on In My Head was played at, at those shows. Um, there were a lot of instrumental riffs, right? Mm -hmm. So so I, I can't say for sure, but I would say uh, without a doubt, there were riffs played at some of those instrumental shows that turned into Henry songs. Yeah. Yeah. Would I mean, not a lot, because like I said, he had a, a lot of cool riffs that we we did and and as you know recorded instrumentally uh, but but i'm sure you're right i'm sure that happened do you suppose black flag instrumental shows were more jam based than say 
gone ended up being? Well, uh, let's put it this way. Black Flag Instrumental was not jam-based for me. Right. <laughs> right? Because I'm playing the riff. Right, and we didn't right. do any free-form jamming in Black Flag Instrumental. Mm-hmm. We may have. I mean, Greg loved to do free-form jamming, right? He did love to do that. We would practice for five hours a day, and then he would jam with other people. <laughs> when me and Bill would walk out sort of holding ourselves and barely being able to move, he would keep playing. He's playing guitar. It's easier, right? <laughs> right yeah. So he loved to jam on tour. He would want to get there early and sound check so that we could jam. He wasn't about the sound check for sound. He was about the sound check so that he could just play and noodle. And, and you know, he just loves to do that. Mm-hmm. And and he's totally open to freeform jamming. But what Black Flag Instrumental was or became was particular riffs in a particular set with me holding down the riffs and him then having the freedom to to jam over them early you know like family man time there's and minute flag i mean you mentioned there is some freeform jamming but this is the exception mm-hmm. with our instrumental stuff in terms of recording and and playing live we might do it we might jam for a couple of hours in the practice place yeah. But not that wasn't necessarily. I mean, Minute Flag <laughs> demonstrated jamming on tape wasn't working out that great. You know, I mean, we we could never capture the kinds of things that we would capture. In the, you know, the the problem is the tape is rolling and you're now on the spot to jam yeah. in a cool way, right? Yeah, for sure. And a forty eight hour lockout while you're trying to record two full records. And by the way, do some cool jamming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I suppose it's much different than the spontaneous. Uh, practice-based version of of jamming exactly yeah. and and i frankly have never been very good at freeform jamming don't particularly enjoy it and you know haven't spent a lot of time doing it since yeah i i feel like the later era you know has kind of been reappraised in the last 10 to 20 years i f- f- it seems like a lot more people mention loose nut and in my head as their favorite black flag albums do you as I mean, do people I, say I that? Mean, come you? on, most people say "Damaged," uh, you know, hands down, best record. Um, no, I mean, I've heard, I've heard it all. I, I, I think you're right, but but it's probably only because, let's face it, the number of people who were into Black Flag back then, and the number of people, I mean. Why, tell me, please, is rehash such a big thing? Why is there, you know, so, why do people want to go see Roxy music? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm a little flabbergasted by the fact that Black Flag, you know, is no so well known, right? Because we were broke and starving and nobody cared, you know, we were an underground band that somehow now is famous, you know, um, so... But putting the numbers in means that you get more people with more sensibilities. So you have the people who love the damaged era and you have people who who maybe are are don't have the preconceptions of what punk rock should sound like, you know, and, and maybe, you know, someone played something for them that was like and in my head. I mean, if you hear Henry on those later records, he is coming into his own. He is the one who sells that material because it's coming from his own emotional, you know, register. So uh, so it, it, it's certainly true for me. 
but I'm not surprised that, you know, if you talk to 10 black flag plants, eight of them will still say damaged is the best record. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I, when I think about it. And I love damaged, so don't get me wrong. When I think about it, I, I think it's like this. It, I think people are just catching up with Black Flag now. You, the band was so far <laughs> ahead of it. People are slow. Well, I mean, it's like the Stooges, right? Like, they're just now getting, you know, kind of more mainstream credibility for being a super innovative band. Well, when I was in junior high, the Stooges had, you know, I mean, I think it was the Bowie connection that made it have a lot more credibility in the and and record presence in a record store kind of thing. I mean, Black Flag didn't ever have a presence in a record store, trust me, yeah. back then, right? So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that I don't know what happened. You know, punk rock was this underground thing. How does it become mainstream? And then how does it become that, you know, now you have to figure out, okay, well, who you know, who were the big, you know, punk rock people. So you have to look at punk rock and its origins and figure out, I mean, you have people, my theory is always, you know, it comes from things like uh, Chili Peppers and Nirvana and bands like that who got big said, they said, who are your influences? And they talked about early punk rock Mm -hmm. being their influences. So then people start, start knowing about this from this whole, other angle and they start exploring and maybe you're right people are still exploring and again maybe with some distance from the original thought of what punk rock was supposed to be they're able to just experience it emotionally themselves and they connect to like i said the henry connection that you might get in a later thing where he's not necessarily feeling i mean slip it in does that sound like henry (laughs) yeah no that's greg that's greg that's a greg song right that's henry trying to channel greg which i'm not saying he does it badly i'm saying he's not speaking in his own voice yeah yeah for sure okay so let's talk about this i can see you record so i I guess like the the songs that are on here i mean again this could just be hindsight but it seems like these are the these are four songs that it was probably right to leave off the LP version of, of in my head. They kind of seem to stand apart a little bit. Do you, do you think I I was not part of that decision-making process, but I, I don't necessarily see that. I mean, yes, I was surprised about uh, going back today because I did, I did visit. Mm -hmm. Um, I was surprised at the choices, um, to put on that record, which happened after Bill and I were both out of the band. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I could see that the, 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 there's some there's some editing that has to occur, right? Yeah. So yeah, if, they, if we record, you record these songs and certain the songs are just better than others or, or were performed better than others or whatever. I, I thought I Can See You was sounded up particularly like a weak, weaker song, this, that song itself um but like out of this world was the only song that bill wrote lyrics to my riff which was a sexic song Ah. (laughs) a time before um so it was the only song of that so to me it has it's kind of special and i think black bill has this blackness (laughs) that um that henry could connect to so so that that's a song where i hear henry able to channel bill's thing so i i have a soft spot for that so but um 
but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, if I had been asked, I could see myself voting the same. Okay. So do you recall if any of these four songs were, were ever performed live? I like, I know you didn't do the final tour, but I, this was all in the can when you, when you, this uh, was all in the can when I was kicked out of the band, <laughs> which was right after the 1985 tour. So uh, fall 1985, I had a plan for my last quarter of um, UCLA, and I found out that they were planning to tour. So that meant they were planning to tour without me then. Uh, and Mike told me they were going to throw me out when I called home uh, and talked to him. Uh, so that was fun to know ahead of time and, and play my last couple of gigs. That seems like a very black flag way to, to get told you're not in the well, band and the, anymore. The best, though, <laughs> the best is still that, that they made Chuck take me to breakfast down the street or take me to this restaurant down the street to tell me. And he afterwards said, man, I'm sorry. They like, that was bullshit that they made <laughs> me do that. Um, but anyways, uh, so yeah, Stuff's All in the Can um, it was recorded before the tour. Uh, and then we did the, the In My Head tour, I guess it was called. No, no, the Loose Nut tour and In My Head was already in the can. We did that in, as a 48-hour lockout, yep. those two records. Which is insane, um, by the way. <laughs> well, it's money. Yeah. <laughs> it's money. You know, we were broke. 48-hour lockouts were cheap. Yeah. <laughs> I inevitably would have a midterm exam at UCLA the Monday after the 48-hour lockout. So right. I'd be studying <laughs> during the times when my hands hurt so bad we had to take a break. Right. Anyways, the... um. Did we play any of them live? Let me look at the four songs again. It's four, right? Yeah, four songs. No, I think we played You Let Me Down live, and I and I love that song. And that would be the surprise of it. Yeah, that one kind of works with the with the lyrics. It's it's interesting. Again, uh, it's Henry is it, Henry is being himself. Like, can you not feel it when Henry is himself? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, you can tell it's it's a it's an instrumental with with lyrics put on top afterwards. I, I mean, I guess right, maybe but think about think about him sitting on the floor of the practice room, listening to it, and starting to have that feeling. Right, starting to have that feeling of what what would I say? What would I do? Right, like, this is organically happening, you know, in a way that nothing else happened. He's like he this the music is oozing into him, and lyrics are coming out. I mean, it's amazing. And to me, that's what makes some of it so cool is that he's clearly feeling it by osmosis and, and spitting stuff out in response. <laughs> okay, so out of this world, that's interesting that that's a, the reverse of a, a lot of what we've been talking about, which is you contributing lyrics, you contribute contributed the music to that one. What about the songs Best One Yet and I'm the One? That's the same thing. That those were uh those were sexic songs. Both of them. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, this is this was happening um Greg was he was leaving practice more and probably, you know, pissed at Bill or something, you know, because Bill was thrown out before I was right. right? He was right. thrown out before the tour, um, which was really appreciated because I got two weeks to get little Anthony up to speed. <laughs> um, but he, uh, he was leaving us on our own more. And so, you know, when me and Bill were just in practice by ourselves, I would throw out 
these sexic songs because we uh we michelle and i uh were really into black flag at the end of sexic so we were writing some songs that that i felt it were even you know somewhat influenced mm -hmm. so there was a connection they were the mm -hmm. last few sexic songs that had been written influenced by black flag i feel like there's no way bill stevenson was content just being a drummer in black flag i mean you see him like getting credited as a producer on some of these records these later records um bill is a really complex guy <laughs> like it, it's uh but he but he's not someone who writes songs with a guitar you know so it's so it's interesting um he and i even really early like it was might have been family man uh, me and Bill were questioning the the producing of one of the records, and he told Greg told me and Bill to go well go produce it, go do go make up your version, right? Yeah. And so we went and, and made a version and brought it back, and then you know listened to it outside of it and went like, okay, well this isn't as good as we thought. You know, producing is hard. Yeah, producing is really hard, mm -hmm. right? And so I think that, I mean, Greg obviously has a really specific sensibility, but I think Bill wanted to capture, you know, he did have feelings and emotions about, about how things should sound and, and was trying to, uh, and he and, and Greg would debate and discuss. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so yeah, I mean, he was not content just being a black flag drummer because and and this was probably the thing that Greg had the most trouble with is that he wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to go back to to playing with the guys that he had played with before. He wanted to do Descendants. He wanted to uh, get to express himself more in that way. It, there was a part of him that wasn't addressed in Black Flag for sure. Yeah. So you said you listened to this recently, like today yes. or yesterday what did what did you think when you heard it what did what did you think of it are you happy it's out well i was <laughs> i i'm I, look i don't have any feelings about it. I, i'm kind of surprised that they uh decided to put it out um after that because there was it always felt like there was animosity right when there's animosity you don't expect that but but then when I when I listened to it, I was like, yeah, like I said, they were when I listened to I could see you, I was thought, sort of think of it as an outtake, but um and kicking and sticking is a little bit of an outtake kind of number, you know, but but like I said, the other two I think were um songs that I thought, you know, I would say less that they didn't necessarily fit on in my head. They were on that cassette version mm -hmm. of in my head. Right. Yeah, so they, yeah. I thought of them as on in my head. I've certainly listened to them in that context and think of them in that context. Yep. That's fair for sure. Okay. Uh, moving past Black Flag, I, I want to know about the project you had later on called Approximation. I've never heard it. Can you describe <laughs> what describe it to me? What what does it sound like? How did oh, it happen? Okay. Well, Approximation, I have a friend um, for many years now named Eric Martini, and he is a guitar player, songwriter who a long, long time ago we dated, um, but then we maintained a friendship. And he he has been trying to do this band called Approximation for many years. And I only say trying because it's been, 
bands are so hard, right? I mean, I refuse to join approximation. I and so so what basically what's happened is he's been through a bunch of bass players, and when he went to record, I said, "Well, I will record. I I just won't join your band, right?" So he. Um, he had me, uh, I, I practiced a little with them and I, I had the, I had recordings to play along with and I just practiced and, uh, and recorded bass lines, uh, to it. And then, uh, and then the second record, he wanted Steve Albini to do it. And he literally recorded another bass player and then had me replace the bass lines. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so he's someone who's just appreciated my bass playing and my friendship, and I've appreciated his. He's it's very rock, uh, you know, uh, stuff. I enjoyed that. I really kind of like being session bass player sometimes. Like I've done that a little bit for my brother, who is a producer, who will uh, Paul, who will uh, say, you know, will you give me a bass line for this? And I sometimes we'll even create multiple versions, you know, multiple bass lines and say, you know, let pick them your favorite. Pick. <laughs> right, exactly. Because there's to my mind, there's sort of the the sometimes there's the more obvious bass line and then there's the more Kira bass line. Now in approximation, I said, I get to do whatever I want. Right. Dude. <laughs> so the fun part about that is that it's a pretty straight rock record with Kira being sort of her usual rhythmically convoluted self and leaving out the one and, you know, yeah. making it more interesting that it than it would be otherwise. And then he makes them play my bass line <laughs> when they join the band <laughs> as a test. <laughs> okay. Well, what I have heard uh, several times is your... Uh your solo album that's a couple years oh, old cool. now it's excellent um thank you is there going to be another one i, I doubt it nobody cares <laughs> like i said they want to go see roxy music 50 years later they don't want to hear me i caved in pedro dude <laughs> i caved oh. there was nobody there hmm. people don't want to see new music they don't want to see me do i mean nobody ever came to those gigs or bought those records either they whether or not they're Mike Watt fans or Black Flag fans, they're certainly not Dose fans, and they're not Kira fans. So it's so my record is it's it's a labor of love. I've been making my own music in my room for many many years, and still do, and still will. But I didn't want to release a record ever. Paul talked me into it. I now feel like I'm totally vindicated. I was right. Nobody cares. And why would I put out another one? I mean, I promoted it. I, I played live, which I wasn't planning on doing. And, you know, and, and the response, and it's fine. It's everybody I've talked to who's heard it seems to enjoy it. But people don't buy music anymore yeah. and they don't go to gigs anymore. You know, so w why not stick with what has felt good all these years, which make, make the music, but don't worry about putting it out. So, so yeah, I don't have a big... It's weird. It's like you said about everybody looking backwards now. If it's a if a really band true. ever, the Stooges again, you know, everyone will yeah. look back at those albums. But when I'd be curious to know how many records they sold of those new Stooges records that they put out. I had to literally do it. I was participated <laughs> in this podcast that was about 
one of the, the weirdness yeah. and it was a, they, they and they had a pro and con like i was the pro the weirdness <laughs> voice and they had someone else and they were talking about how much it stunk right right, right. and yeah yeah what they want to do is take pot shots at bands for yeah. for doing something new and different or i mean this is may not be a good example but fugazi the argument is a great record yep. Yep. you know i mean i want to hear what people want to do i don't want to go see x play the same fucking songs yeah. i love the avengers they were one of my favorite bands do i want to see them right now i would support them because i care about them as people yeah. but i'm not dying to go see them play the old avengers songs yeah i mean I, that's just me and i seem to be in the minority yeah no i i mean yeah nostalgia sells right but like I, I don't know right now yeah. and maybe as you say maybe people you know there will become a time i mean i didn't i knew that my record would be a strange thing it is it's a it's a very sad emotional <laughs> dark thing and, you know i don't expect it to hit people in their funny bone you know um but uh, you know we played live we actually got a, i just got a hold of a pretty great recording audio recording of the last gig and and they and they videotaped it as well so so i have it for posterity <laughs> right on kira thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today i really appreciate it of course well thanks for having me yeah and uh before i let you go kira uh speaking of seeing dose play live um i saw you play live here where i live in saskatoon you flew in for a jazz festival at a club that i book at so saskatoon yeah, yeah. the jazz fest in canada <laughs> yeah. was one of our favorite uh little we did a few like little sort of long weekend things over the course of the dose careers and that was absolutely one of the favorite uh ones we had uh we had a great time and and people were really cool yeah. up there I think people, up, I got the feeling like people up there were as interested in what Dose was doing as as anybody, yeah, you know. Yeah, people still talk it, about it. It yep. was, uh, it was a good, it was a good time. And, uh, and that, you know, I mean, Dose was a labor of love, uh, very much a, a tribute to the bass guitar and, and both of our belief that it is absolutely a lead instrument. So, <laughs> and I've stuck with that, you know. Yeah. My, my record is very much a bass record, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Right on. Thanks. Take care. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye. All right. Love hearing from Kira. Love that we got into some fire hose and some Minutemen as well, too. Amazing origin stories of those Kira credits that we've been reading all these years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say I had some technical difficulties uh, and Kira was just so patient and so cool uh, throughout throughout all of that. She's just she's just the best. Um, I'm with Kira 1000%. I want my favorite bands to put out new music. Like, mm. you know, there's just nothing like it. I'm just like a child at Christmas when, yeah. when one of my favorite bands has a new album coming out. Like just giddy with anticipation. It never gets old. <laughs> I, I've pro maybe mentioned this on the podcast before, but this always stuck with me. I was talking to this dude once. He had a, a Vic Rattlehead tattoo. Do you know who Vic Rattlehead is? I have no idea. <laughs> it's like the the mascot. Bass player for Han bass player for Hanoi Rocks no. or what? <laughs> okay. No, that's Sammy Yaffa. Dude, weren't you paying attention? I just spe <laughs> spieled about him like a month ago. <laughs> no, Vic Rattlehead is like the the Eddie of 
of Megadeth. He's like their mascot. He's on their album covers. Oh, the mummy? No, that's Eddie. <laughs> Sorry, man. I You're don't, trolling I... me. <laughs> I'm not. I just have never paid attention to that type of music. I'm sorry. Okay. Well, just trust me. Okay. okay. So this guy had a Vic Rattlehead tattoo and I was, oh, cool. I was commenting on it and he goes, yeah, they're, they're, Megadeth's my all-time favorite band. And I go, oh, I just love their new album. They just put out a new album. And he goes, oh, I haven't bought any of their last, you know, 10 albums. What? Like I stopped buying their albums in the nineties. He goes. Whoa. Like you're that's, missing, that's I think you're missing fucked. out. You're missing out, man. Like I don't, I don't understand that mentality at all. Yeah, me either. I'm, I'm into new records too. Well, just think about how stoked you were for that new Maiden record too, right? All, yeah, man. Uh, so that podcast that she mentions that she was on, I found it and checked it out. It's called Make It Stop, a bad music podcast. I gather the premise of the show is to, you know, discuss supposedly shitty albums um, you know, whatever. Along with the two hosts, the guests are Sophia, Sophia Bell of a band called Home Despot, uh, and Kira. I also gleaned that they typically don't have a guest on to defend the album, which is what Kira valiantly attempts to do on this episode. Which album does she defend? Uh, The Weirdness, The Stooges. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Right. No, man, that's a good record. Yeah. You know, like it's not it's not funhouse right but like it's not terrible uh oh i like i like the dolls and the stooges get together albums man the stooges ones are or the dolls ones are great yeah and and that second stooges one uh with uh james uh, james williamson that one's awesome yeah uh you know whatever the weirdness has its merits but what i really noticed on this particular episode and many other music podcasts that I listen to is how much time people spend listening to and discussing lyrics and lyric lyrics are just something I've never really focused on. I suppose like Hmm. to me, they're just another component of the song and they're no more or less important to me within the anatomy of a song than any of the instrumentation. Hmm. Depends on the song for me, I would say. Yeah. Sometimes they're like another melody, another layer Sometimes they're the most important part for me. Sure, sure. I I don't know. It's not a deal breaker for me, though. Like, I think, and I don't want to misrepresent Kira's position, but one of her main issues, I I think, and I'm not trying to speak for her, certainly one of mine, is fans who don't want artists to evolve or take risks, or, you know, they just want them to keep repeating themselves. I may be getting that wrong, but that's for sure something that irks the shit out of me. And Kira, of all people, would know exactly what it's like to be in a band that's constantly leaping out of the box that fans want to put them in. Yeah, like the Mars Volta. <laughs> and, you, and you, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, my mention of the Dose show at the end, I, that was meant to be off pod, but it you know, it was so cool. So I had to leave it in. That was in 2004. Oh, and in Saskatoon? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, I mentioned right off the hop, how important dose is to me. I couldn't make that show. And I, it's, there's a, there's an emptiness in me 
ever since I wasn't able to make that show. Yeah, I couldn't believe it was happening at the time. Uh, they signed my copy of that first Dose record, which I never do, by the way. I think that might be my only signed record in my entire collection. Uh, and wow. Kira just wrote bass really big, and Mike wrote love and bass. <laughs> but this, you know... Well, that I've got a I've got a Mike Watt like tour poster, mm-hmm. and it says "Love and Bass Mike Watt" on it. That's his thing. There you go. Kira sat with us that night in between sets. They played two sets, and you know she told us all kinds of stories. Mike was still recovering from his that near fatal infection that he had. Oh yeah, so yeah. He, he was kind of taking it pretty easy. Yeah. Uh, Kira was wearing her trademark fingerless gloves and like just totally pogoing around the stage, which was good because Mike Mike was sitting down for the show. Yeah. Uh, it was a fly-in, and their I, their tech rider was a. I had to gather their like their backline. Yeah. You know, Marshall four twelves for each of them. <laughs> <laughs> a Marshall hundred watt head for Kira, and if I'm remembering right, Watts was a Mesa boogie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mike for sure played his red, you know, one of his red Gibson EB3s and Kira of course played her, her blue Rick. So Kira, obviously we all kind of know the story about how her tenure in flag ended near the fall of 85, ended up graduating from UCLA and we mentioned dose, but let's, let's, uh, talk about these dose records. There's the first dose record, which is just, uh, just called dose. New Alliance Records, number 32. I totally rocked it this week, man. And I was rocking yeah. to it super hard. Yeah. And you mentioned a bunch of the songs on there, you know, The Rabbit and the Porcupine, which so cool to hear the origin of those songs and the stories. Uh, came out in 86, New Alliance, great. I always, you know, like, you don't know how long I stared at that picture of Watt and Kira on the back cover there. And, and the little trinkets on top of the uh, <laughs> the uh, the studio speakers. Oh man, I just love that one. Uh, next up was Numero Dos. This is uh, New Alliance Records, forty four from eighty nine. And then both of these records were collected on Uno Con Dos, which is New Alliance sixty one. That's uh, both of those records on CD, and I just. I don't know. They're they're classics for me. Yeah, totally. I never I, I never get tired of those ones. Um, there's also the Bob Lawton EP with a great Pettibone cover from '91 on Ecstatic Peace. We've uh, mentioned Ecstatic Peace a number of times on the show. Uh, obviously associated with uh, Sonic Youth and Thurston Moore in particular. And there's there's a great story, of course, about how. Uh, Watt and Kira and Sonic Youth and Chaconi Youth kind of got Watt into playing bass again after D. Boone's death. So important uh, record for Kira and Watt to be on. Then there's the the Kill Rockstars record, Justament Trays, from uh, 1996. This one's got some some covers on it too. You know, powerful Hankrin. There's Dream of San Pedro, which we saw on some Watt records too. Then the last Dose album, Dosey Dose, this one's from 2011, I think, right? Yeah. It's on Clenched Wrench and Org, ORG. And just another great uh, Watt and Kira 
uh, photo on the back. They're both rocking the purple, purple album cover. Kira's got her blue bass. Watts playing a weird like airline bass. Don't really see him playing an airline that often, but that's cool. That's uh, the Dose story, though. There's actually a split 7-inch, too. Everyone should check out Dose. Mm-hmm. I, I can't say enough good things about them. Yeah. There's also a couple of comps that Kira was on. We mentioned this record way, way back early on in the d- days of the show. The uh, compilation Gimme, 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 Reinterpreting Black Flag. Kira Sings, Gimme, 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 and also Nervous Breakdown. That's from 2010 on the Secret Life of Records label. Kira's also on the Rise Above comp from 2002, which is on Sanctuary and Henry's label. 24 Black Flag songs to benefit the West Memphis Three. Kira and Henry both sing on Annihilate This Week. Um, And then you also spoke with Kira about the approximation combo on the show. They've got two records out. I could not find anything by them to listen to i yeah. couldn't even i couldn't even find find it to buy yeah, anywhere same but it sounds like it's probably a bit more straight ahead yeah. than we're than we're used to but still has kira's kind of vibe on the bass so i'm definitely interested in checking that out i'll keep my eye out for sure she and talks that, a bit about one of those actually on that podcast that i mentioned because albini recorded the weirdness or engineered it mm. and one of those records, she recorded her bass parts, or the whole album was recorded with Steve Albini. Oh, no way? So, yeah. Oh, gosh. Why isn't that more available? Yeah, I don't know. I've never heard it. Bizarre. Gotta, I got to find it. I'll find it. One of these days, I'll find it. Yeah. It's on my list now, so I'll find <laughs> it. Um, and then Kira mentioned as well her self-titled record from 2021 on Kitten Robot Records, her brother Paul's label, which... Um, it doesn't sound like it got as much play as as maybe she was, well, maybe Paul was hoping, uh, but people should definitely check that out. It's a cool record. I mean, if you like Dose, yeah. I mean, you're going you're gonna to like this self-titled record from last year. People should, And we talked about it on the show last year as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, definitely check that one out. And, and that's kind of, you know, post-Black Flag Kira. Um, but then, of course, folks are probably also aware that Kira has, you know, a, another career, not just as a, a bass player, but she works in film or TV, TV and film as a dialogue editor. And she either won or was part of the team that won Emmys for shows like John Adams and Game of Thrones. And then in 2016, this definitely made the rounds on uh, all the threads that I follow, how she was part of the team that won an Oscar for Mad Max Fury Road. Yeah. So... Very cool. I mean, Kira obviously has got a thing for sound, right? Mm-hmm. She's either just rocking the thump staff or the thunder broom, or she's mixing it down. It's super impressive, man. When you do something, do it all the way. Yeah. Yep. Full ass, no half ass. Yep. Hey, let's talk about this record. History lesson, part two. So I've only got this on like a CD single digipack thing. I don't know. Do you have it on 12 inch? I have it on 12 inch. Yeah. So the material on this EP was recorded during the in my head sessions in May of 1985. It was engineered by Dave Tarling produced by Greg and Bill at total access in Redondo beach. It was done along with the other tracks that ended up on in my head during a 48 hour 
recording session that ended up being Bill and Kira's last with the band. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, depending what you read, um, originally conceived as Greg's first solo album, and it was set to be an instrumental one. Weird that he would use Black Flag's rhythm section to record a solo album, uh, but who knows how it actually played out. Three of the four tracks, as you mentioned, that are on this EP ended up as bonus tracks on the CD and cassette versions of mm-hmm. In My Head, but they were sequenced into the flow of the album as, to, as opposed to, you know, tacked on to the end. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, it's weird to listen to these as a standalone package. Yeah. Oh, I'm the opposite. I'm, I've only ever listened to In My Head on LP, so I've always considered this EP to be its own thing. Like... it's it's weird it's weird for me like they are i don't know i like them better on the record when Mm. i listen to them on the ep it's kind of like they're not as good yeah (laughs) yeah definitely yeah (laughs) i guess it all comes down to how you know these songs right yeah uh the cd version by the way didn't come out until 1990 so unless you had the you know back in the day unless you had the cassette because this came out you know like three years after the band split up. 89. Yeah. My So my CD version of this EP, what's your 12-inch dated? Is it 89 as well? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So unless you had the cassette of In My Head, you know, this came out before the CD version of In My Head, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Did it um, come out, did this come out on single as well? I believe it did, yeah. Okay, nice. For me, hard not to look at it as cutting room floor material released posthumously for a buck, but I am sure there are Black Flag fans out there who love this EP. Uh, I'm not one of them. It's okay for me, but it's not as mind-blowing as as some of their other material. Like, or even the the tracks on In My Head. Like, I listened to the the version that's uh, up for streaming of In My Head is the, like, the CD version. Yeah. So I listened to that this week, which is not how I am used to listening to that record because I've only ever owned it on LP. And I agree with you. Like to me, they they sound like fish out of water because I'm not used to hearing them in that context. I, but, I bet, yeah. But they're better in the LP context, but still yes. to me, they pale in comparison uh, to, the, to the In My Head tracks. Yeah, there are just some pummeling tracks on In My Head that make these pale in comparison, I would agree. One thing about SST, you know, they hardly ever wasted unreleased material, which (laughs) begs the question I saw one person, uh, you know, a point someone was making online was like, if Greg is going to release this EP, why not release the 82 demos? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, this was released in 89 three years after the breakup on CD, 12 inch LP and cassette. Uh, The cassette had the tracks replaying on both sides. I don't believe it was issued on a mini CD, which is odd because they were cranking those out at this time. Yeah. In fact, we're going to be getting to one next week. (laughs) Yeah. So let's do these tracks, Ryan. So track one, side one, I can see you written by Greg Ginn. If I'm being honest, I've kind of always hated this song. It sounds like a nursery rhyme to me. Like even Henry's call and response vocal, even the way he delivers it, uh, you know, and the don't stab me in the back refrain is just 
kind of it's totally Greg Ginn, you know. Mm-hmm. Greg's leads for me are even lame, which you know I love Ginn's playing. So you know I'm I'm probably pissing people off right now uh, for my opinion, but you know it's okay to be a Black Flag fan and not love every single thing that they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, considering it's the title track of the EP, it's always been for me one that maybe could have stayed as an instrumental if it ever was one uh, or just been left unreleased really like this is just pure pure speculation on my part but I'm guessing this was an instro and when Gin realized in my head was going to be a full Black Flag album with vocals he wrote lyrics for this song Mm, the the, the lyrics sound like an afterthought to me well it's funny because I had something written down about the guitar solos. Not that they are an afterthought, but Gin solos are very commonly uh, atonal, dissonant, um, not your typical scales, you know, diminished. This one in particular, sound it sounds like it's a solo from a different song or played in the wrong key at the same time. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah, I don't love it. Um, the next track is Kicking and Stickin', written by Greg and Henry. This is the track that's exclusive to this release. Mm-hmm. It's short, 1 minute, 23 seconds. Come off, comes off as half-baked to me, again. I've seen comments from people singling this track out as a standout. I'm not mm. one of those people that thinks that, um, you know, like I said, to me it's half-baked, pun intended. And although I... I love Henry, and I think he did the, like the best he could vocally with what he was given. This one falls short for me. Yeah, I like the instrumentation better than the vocals on this one. The lyrics kind of fall short. Yeah. Flipping it over, though, to side two of the LP, Out of This World, written by Bill and Kira. As Kira mentions, the music was hers from a band uh, with Michelle Bell, called, uh, a.k.a. Gerber, called Sex Sick. There are some Sex Six bootlegs uh, you can hear uh, on YouTube from 1981. It's pretty cool to check out. You can also see them perform this cool dirgy track on that show New Wave Theater we've talked about talked about before. It's New Wave Theater number 20 if you want to you know, put it in the YouTube search bar. Uh, Kira was already at that point playing her trademark Rick and occasionally skipping the one. You can hear her do that, do it on that song. Ah. Yep. Right from the start uh, of this song, with like that Gin chord and the pick slide, this sounds more like the Black Flag that I want to hear, which makes sense considering the music was written by Kira, you know, at a time when she was influenced by earlier Black Flag material. Hmm. You know, she says in the interview that this was you know, Sex Sick was really into Black Flag and was was trying to, you know, write songs in that style at that time. Yeah. For me, Rollins also sounds way more at home on this one. Great point that Kira makes about Bill having a, a darkness that was suited to Henry. The best example of that for me being Loose Nuts, Now She's Black. Yeah, yeah. This song's good. Like, I like this one. Yep. Okay, and the next one, You Let Me Down. Uh, Ginn and Rollins, most definitely, I would say, an instrumental with lyrics tacked on by Henry. Again, I'd say he did the best he could given the circumstances. 
I like the interplay between Kira and Bill. I'm not sure what the time signature is, but I I don't think it's 4-4. Better than anything on side one for me, this one. But still mm. not not really like earth shattering or anything. Like I said, maybe it's just because I've listened to In My Head way more, you know, on LP. The These tracks just don't sound like they fit. And, you know, with the exception of Out of This World, to me, they're not as good as anything on the LP version of In My Head. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. I hope Kira isn't offended, <laughs> by the way, by my not really liking this EP. It, it it doesn't happen often, but it feels wrong to have an artist on as a, as a guest and then kind of shit on the release. It's certainly not a reflection on Kira in any way. No, no. It's just keeping it real. I mean, when you look at the output of Black Flag, you know, some of it is life-changing. It's amazing, right? Yeah. But it all can't be that good. Yeah. Uh, no Dead Wax on the LP, Ryan. Mm. Uh, the cover art, again, up there with what the, for like the lamest <laughs> Black Flag cover art. <laughs> there's it's no all... there's no credit to the artist, which is not surprising. I wouldn't want my name attached to this. Yeah, it almost looks like really early clip art or something like that. You know what clip art is? Oh yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I've yeah. I've always taken it to be like an attempt at a, a weak approximation of Pettibone art. Yes, kind of. But I mean, it is an image of like a twelve gauge shotgun or something like that. I wouldn't know what kind of gun, but it's like a pump action with a, a sight and a gun barrel and someone holding it. Am I right on that? I'd say so. It's not a puppet, is it? <laughs> <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not as iconic as some of that earlier Black Flag stuff. But, I mean, this was the era where uh, Greg and Raymond had a falling out too, right? So Yeah, and yeah. it was just crank it out, man. Yep. They, they really just ramped up the Mersh. Yeah, uh, ballot result? Yeah, man. Ballot result. All right, let me guess. Kicking and sticking, right? <laughs> no, nah, it's out of this world, or you let me down, but for me, for me, it's out of this world. Yeah, out of this world is better, yeah. for sure. I would agree. Yeah. Hey, Ryan, thanks to Kira for being on the show. What a treat having her on. Yeah, that's a highlight for sure. I mean, I don't know. One of, one of, I don't want, I don't want to say like bass idols or anything like that, but as a bass player, definitely one of the people out there that I played along with the most in my formative years, hundred percent. Yeah. Well, I played in bands with you. I guess that must be why you're such a rock solid bassist. <laughs> I don't, I don't <laughs> think so. I don't think so. But for a minute. I was, you know, it's weird. I was thinking about it, like the bass players that I really gravitated toward in my teenage years as I was picking up the instrument and very few were really like macho, overtly ma masculine type of bass players. You know, everyone always kind of jokes about bass players being, you know, the, you know, they're just slightly better than the drummer in the band in terms of lameness or whatever right yeah. but uh very few of the bass player like klaus floride was like my idol because he was he looked like some college 
geek with glasses on, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and there are, there's a, a very, I don't know what it was. I mean, I, I definitely wasn't like, uh, a jock or something like that. And I gravitated towards the weirdo bass players. And some of them were female bass players and Kira was one of them. So it's just, I don't know. It's very cool for me. I, I can't say enough. Yeah. Right on. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, man, we are going back to Brian Ritchie. It's SST 227, the Brian Ritchie Sunra Man from Outer Space EP. And we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, Ryan. So uh, I was teasing you a little bit before we started that I that I did an interview, but I wouldn't tell you who it was Who is with. it? Who is it? Who is it? So remember a few episodes back, you were mentioning the writer John Corbett emailing Watt about Sun Ra artifacts or whatever. No. Yeah. No. So I started digging into John a bit. Again, another super prolific musicologist that I'm a bit embarrassed to say I was unfamiliar with. Dude, you got to get his book. It's amazing. I I got this one right here. Is this the one? Yeah, that's the one. You got to read that. Yeah. Vinyl freak. Yeah. Yes. I've got a few more on the way. Um, uh, I'm actually embarrassed. I was, you know, unfamiliar with him. Super pro- prolific writer. Uh, so I, I quickly sourced this one, and and uh, uh, which we can talk a little bit more about next week if you want. Uh, but he'll also be on as our guest, and wow. it's a great interview. We talk about, among other things, the music and life of Sun Ra. Yes, so, I bet. So we had a great chat, and uh, I hope everyone <laughs> checks it out. It's something a bit different for us, but I think people will like it. Oh, that's so cool. Great surprise. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is MoJackPod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.